We're joined on the star line by a man who recorded 11 albums, eight number one singles, countless cuts ranging from Keith Urban, Luke Bryan, Hootie and the Blowfish, and many more. His CD book, For You to See the Stars, is available at a retailer near you. Randy Foster, welcome. Hey, how are you, Sean? Absolutely great. Let's go beyond the mic. <laughs> All right, let's do it. You were born in Del Rio, Texas. How did you gain your appreciation of music? You know, my dad was a lawyer, but he played guitar and sang. And there's actually a song about it and a little portion of one of the short stories that goes right along with that song. The song's called The Greatest Show on Earth, on my new record. And it's just about him and his buddies playing music on the back porch. And certainly, you know, he and my mom had a big record collection and we all sang in church. Both he and my mom sang in the choir in church and that kind of thing. But, you know, he would serenade us to sleep at night a couple nights a week, you know, standing in the hallway between our rooms. And he would, on many of spring or fall, and, and I remember summers too, even, Somebody brought the barbecue, somebody brought the potato salad, somebody brought the beer, and everybody brought an instrument. And they'd play all Saturday night. I mean, they would just play. And and if it had three chords and was easy and they dug it, it didn't matter to them if it was a Bill Monroe song or if it was a Hank Sr. song or if it was a Frank Sinatra song or an Elvis song or whatever the genre was. It, it you know If it was simple you know, and they could play it and they thought it was a cool tune, they would. And, and that was really my, a, a massive musical education. What song, if you remember, did he used to sing to you to sleep? Oh, lots. Off the Magic Dragon, you know? That was that brand new song by that those youngsters, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, <laughs> back in the day. Um, Tom Dooley, uh, Red River Valley. Uh, I think Red River Valley is the first song I learned to play on guitar. You Are My Sunshine. I can remember uh, Walking the Floor Over You. Nice. You know, I mean, so, I mean, lots of, lots of country songs, lots of, but lots of traditional, you know, folk songs too, you know, like, uh, this land is your land, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, uh, gospel songs, amazing grace. Ranny, you graduated high school, headed to the university of the South. What'd you end up studying there? I was studying, um, forestry and geology. Because I thought I was going to come home. I was the great-grandson of the first lawyer in Del Rio who sent every single one of his boys to law school. He didn't think there was an education that was worth a damn other than that. And then my father was a lawyer. My, my grandfather didn't practice law. He sold Chryslers because his brothers, there were so many of his brothers already practicing law at Del Rio. <laughs> there wasn't enough room. You know, it's like, so he had to, you know, he got, I got to figure out another job, man, you know. So I thought I was going to come home to, you know, take over the family business. I mean, I, so I studied forestry and geology and thought, you know, land use, uh, oil and gas law, and, you know, figured that was where I was headed. So why'd you leave? Music got in the way, you know. I had several bands in, in college, but my junior year in college, I had a band that was kind of like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. You know, we had a couple of bluegrass buddies from Kentucky, but then we had, you know, electric guitar and bass and drums and I played acoustic. And so, you know, we had banjo and sometimes fiddle and, or mandolin and, and then, you know, me on acoustic, but then electric guitar and bass and drums. And, and we played a gig up at college at Swanee, Tennessee at the university. It's a tiny place, you know, it was mostly it was, it was right before alumni weekend. And the guy comes up to me and after the show and he was lit, pretty lit. He's, said, hey, what band does 
you know, those three songs, because I know all those other songs. Like, that's a, you know, that's a Guy Clark song, and that's a that's a Nitty Gritty Dirt Band song, and that's a, you know, my guitar player started laughing. He said, you can't get them, man. Our singer wrote them. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, I don't know Jack Squat about the, the music business, but, you know, I got this buddy who's a, a producer and a songwriter in Nashville. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I write my phone number down on a matchbook, right? And it's the typephone at the end of the hall in my dorm. And sure enough, two weeks later, tacked to my door is a, is a note that says, call Brown Bannister, who was then Amy Grant's producer. And Brown uh, heard me play. I went to Nashville, and he, I played him four or five songs. And he said, man, you got to have a serious talk with your mom and dad about doing this for a living. Amazing story. We're joined beyond the mic by country music star Radney Foster out on tour at a city near you. You moved to Nashville. Talk about those hard times during those early seven years. Uh, you know, I got told by everybody to go home. I got told by almost everyone. There were, it took me a year to find one publisher that wouldn't throw me out of their office. But I got my foot in the door that way. And, and, then, and then started meeting some real song, I mean, some songwriters who, who were making a living at it. And they, and they all kind of took me under their wing. They, they were like, no, you're, you're going to do fine, man. You're gonna, it's just going to take longer because what you do is different. Just don't give up because it's, it's really unique. I got signed to, in 1985, I got signed to Mary Tyler Moore's publishing company uh, literally one month before Bill Lloyd got signed to that same company. And he was signed as a rock writer, and I was signed as a country writer. But I would write rock songs out now and again, and same vice versa with him. And so we kind of got together because we thought, well, maybe if I write with that guy, you know, they'll pay attention over on the rock side to some of my rock and roll songs. And then he was thinking, it's like, well, yeah, maybe if I write with that guy, then, you know, they'll pay attention to some of my country songs, you know, over on the country side of the aisle. You know, the moment that about three songs in, my publisher, you know, hauled me into her office. And I think he got hauled in by whoever his, his person was. And they both just said, whatever you're doing, you guys got to keep writing together because there's magic that's happening when you do that. Whatever it is, don't pay any attention to who's looking or what's going on or anything else like that. Just keep writing like that. Then, you know, we got a song cut by the True Value Hardware winners of the Battle of the Bands for Best Country Band. And they had a single deal on Sony and their names were Sweethearts of the Rodeo. And we wrote Since I Found You that was our first top ten. What was so special about those Foster and Lloyd years? You had to have that special bond to mesh so well with you and Bill Lloyd. I think one was that we didn't feel like we just wrote what we liked. You know, they're publishing back then and, and even now to this day, even though it, it's, it's changed so radically, you know, but everybody's always looking at the charts and wondering what's going on, who's looking and can you get a cut by this guy? Cause that guy's going in and, three months and, you know, let's write a song that's tailor made for Eddie rabbit at the time, or, you know, today Luke Bryan or any of that kind of stuff. And the best part of it was, was that, you know, and that was both of our jobs, Bill more in the rock world and me more in the, in the, in the country world. And, but that was our jobs was to write songs, looking to get cut by somebody else. The publishing company knew there was something magic going on with us. I don't think they thought at the time that we were going to end up, um, but getting signed to RCA Records, I think they thought that was, you know, a 
pipe dream, but they thought there, there's something going on and that's a good songwriting team. And, and they were like, pay no attention to who's looking, pay no attention to the songwriting meetings that they would have, you know, about, you know, that would tell you who was looking at the time because there wasn't no internet that they could email you and go, so-and-so's looking, you know, and going in this, in a month, you know? So they just gave us complete free reign. And I think that freedom was really what made it click. And then we just started knowing it's like when I bring what I love to something, you know, Bill's going to bring something different to it. And I think, you know, our love of both Buck Owens and the Beatles and everything that helped form all of Buck Owens, you know, everything that influenced Buck Owens and everything that influenced the Beatles to get there was really in the Everly's. I mean, you know, it just kind of naturally took shape that way. I think it was just the lack of anyone telling you what to do. 40 years of producing songs. Tell us about the history of your iconic song, Nobody Wins. You know, it truly is one of those writing about real life. I had an appointment to write with Kim Ritchie, and I'm standing in her apartment drinking a cup of coffee at 10 o'clock in the morning. She said, how you doing? And I said, oh, I don't know. It's Mary Springs and I, you know, had this big fight last night. You know, I'm hung over from it, really. She said, yeah. She said, Andrew and I, you know, had the same thing last night, her, her then boyfriend. And I just said, yeah, nobody wins that stuff. She was like, that's what we're writing today. And so we just wrote it from our perspective. And as odd as it seems, as much as I thought I really knew of Chris Christopherson's catalog, because I was such a huge Christopherson fan, I didn't know he had a song that he wrote for Brenda Lee called Nobody Wins. So we thought, you know, I think, has there been a hit called that? And Kim was like, not that I know of, not in the last 15 years anyway. <laughs> and, he, and, and that was true because it had been a hit in like 67 or 68. But we just wrote it, you know, from the heart about just hating that fight. Just, I don't want to have that thing with, you know, writing it from that perspective that, you know, nobody wins that kind of deal. And I think that combined with the melody is one of the things that's made it, you know, it still gets played today. It, it shocks me that, you know, thir- almost 30 years la- later, it's still, well, it is 30 years later. It's still getting played. You've written and produced music, even spent time as the host of the CMT series Crossroads. What motivates you every day? I think all of this. I mean, I think me writing the book is uh, born out of a desire to, uh, you know, tell stories in different ways, uh, acting, you know, uh, hosting that show, um, you know, writing songs that, you know, with the knowledge that somebody else is going to sing besides me, or just writing them, you know, straight up out of the truth of my life, um, warts and all. Uh, I think it's the 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 storytelling aspect is really what drives the whole thing, you know, whether it's with a guitar in your hand or not. You know, I think that really motivates me. And, and watching an audience light up when they hear that story. You let the world premiere of Janice Schaefer's play Troubadour in Atlanta, which dealt with the lead character dealing with his own mortality. Oh, yeah, big time. Have you reckoned with yours? Yes and no. I mean, I don't think any of us ever do. In, in some ways, playing that character, you know, brought a lot of that to the forefront of my mind. I'm about to turn 60 this summer. That's a big milestone. You know, you realize you have fewer years in front of you than you have behind you. But at the same time, you know, 
I still feel bulletproof <laughs> other than I'm sore when I wake up, <laughs> you know, um, I still want to go hiking and fly fishing and play tennis and, you know, and, and do all the things that I love to do athletically. And I still want to write songs and tell stories. I, I just realized you only get so many years to do this. So there's a little bit of that, but I don't think any of us really reckon with it until you're in Billy's shoes. The play's not currently running, but in, in, for the audience, um, my character, Billy Mason, is being forced into retirement because he has epilepsy. His seizures are getting worse and more often, and in 1952, there was no cure for that. And they actually would have thought you were crazy and put you in an insane asylum because of it. He's definitely dealing with his own mortality and the end of a career of not being able to do what he loves to do. It's Radney Foster, country music legend on Beyond the Mic. In late 2015, you suffered a diagnosis that for some singers is a fate worse than death, the loss of your voice. Yeah, I, I had six weeks of, of not talking and then six weeks of vocal therapy after that before I could start singing professionally again. And that three months was uh, a is is really just you know a minefield for your brain, and and it wasn't as if they said it would have been much easier if they just said okay you're not going to talk for six weeks and then you're going to go through six weeks of vocal therapy and you're going to be just fine. It was week by week. Every week they would come in and say, you know, nope, you can't talk yet. Week two, no, you can't talk yet. You go back a week later, no, you can't talk yet. So I'm going, what if this never comes back? What if I'm never able to professionally sing again? What's going to happen? How am I going to feed my family, first of all? About three weeks in, I, I wrote a note to my wife, and I said, I think there's a short story in a song I wrote about six months ago, and I'm going to write it to keep from going crazy. And my wife did not answer me. She picked up the pen and pulled it out of my hand and said, you should because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> and um, that, was, uh, that was the beginning of my literary career right there was, was you know, that, that joke. How did those 12 weeks change your perspective on your own voice? One moment, you're a singer. That one moment changed your life. Well, you could be an, an author and an actor. Yeah, I think really it was it was the wake up call of going, okay, what do I really do? Of distilling it down, you know, sort of giving yourself a talking to, and it's like, okay, do discover what are the things that, you know, what do I really do? And I kind of boiled it down to, I'm a storyteller, and then I thought, what are the ways in which I'm telling the stories that I have no business telling stories that I'm wasting my time? And then what are the ways in which I'm not telling stories that I should be. Also, the feedback that came, you know, once I wrote that first short story and I gave it to my wife, she, she said, she read it, and she was a journalist for many, many years and is a great writer. And she said, you know, babe, this is really good. You need to keep writing this way even once your voice comes back. And so I did, and that ended up becoming the book and the album, 10 short stories and 10 songs to go with it. Talk about the vivid imagery that you have in your songs and in for you to see the stars. Well, I hope I always try in in any place to to paint a picture. I want the audience to be able to see it as much as they're hearing it. And and the challenge was to you know take a song and fill in the gaps of the story that's in the song and expand it 
or to to change it a little bit. A really good example is the last song on the record is called Sycamore Creek. The song is really about, you know, 15 years of these people's lives. And so I thought, that's not a short story. That's a novel. You know, that's, that's, that's a three or 400 page deal right there. And so I thought, oh, well, let me write what happened before. Um, the first verse starts with, you know, two kids who just graduated from high school skinny dipping in a, in a creek. And so I tell the story of their senior year in high school. You know, how'd they, how'd they fall in love? How'd this happen? That was unique. And then there were certain short stories, you know, they got born just out of an idea of waking up, you know, and go, oh, I got this idea for a story. And I started writing that one. And then I had to come up with a song to go with it. And so it was sort of reverse engineering in a way. And, and trying to figure out how to put enough clues into each of the songs or the, or, you know, so that it really matched and fit the story and yet not give away the ending, you know, so to speak. It was always sort of an interesting process. It was a lot of fun. Especially with that song, The Night Demon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, people always go, did you really hear Wolfman Jack? And I said, I'm too, I'm too young, you know, to have heard. Wolfman Jack was in Del Rio, in, in my hometown, from 1959 to 1962. Actually, I think, but mostly I think it was 60, 60 to 62. And then he moved out to San Diego, Ensenada, you know, and he, which could reach into L.A., into that market. But he was across the river in Mexico broadcasting um, all those rock and roll songs. And that station was still working when I was, you know, nine or 10 years old and obsessed with music. And, but it had changed formats and they were playing, there was a guy named Paul Callinger who's now in the DJ hall of fame. And he was spinning whatever he thought was country. So if it was Creedence Clearwater Revival got followed by Willie Nelson, got followed by Dave Dudley, got followed by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. I mean, he didn't care if it came from Nashville, Austin, or, you know, California. If he, if he dug it, he was going to play it. So that is me just writing from perspective of being that kid hiding under the covers and then trying to flip it. And, you know, so much in the 1950s and, and, and early 60s, you know, rock and roll was the devil's music. And so I, I just, you know, went from that perspective. I was raised in a very religious home, not a Pentecostal one, but, but um, I had many. As a matter of fact, the drummer in my high school band was a Pentecostal preacher's son. So I was familiar you know, with, uh, you know, that whole culture. And uh, so that was, it was really fun to write. And then the song just came out like me trying to do my very best Howlin' Wolf Im- imitation. What story from, for you to see the stars is your favorite? Uh, that's like asking me which one of my kids is my favorite. You know, come on. That's, that's, <laughs> it's not, uh, it's really not fair. But I think if, if I, if I, someone said, you know, twist your arm and you got to pick one, it's probably the title song and the title story both together. I watched the way that song, Night After Night, touches people. There's not a dry eye in the house when I play that song. Every single night. It always amazes me. Because I think, and I think of it as a song about hope, but it is also a song about that, you know, it does. It's got to get dark enough for you to see the stars. You know, you've got to go through some valleys before you can appreciate the mountaintop. And the story is a real sweet story about reconciliation between a granddad and and his grandson. Um, and really about, you know, reconciliation of family. What's one thing that you miss from the old Nashville? Boy, there's a lot. <laughs> you, get to, you have to pick you one. Know, I miss half towns. There was a place, there was a meet and three joint, you know, it's just, but it was, 
it was the best cornbread Johnny cakes you ever put in your mouth and great, great, you know, Southern style cooked vegetables. And it was just always an awesome, awesome place and packed. I miss that. I miss guitar pulls. So I don't hear about any, I mean, I, every now and then I still try to have one, but people who were stars, I mean, I can remember going over to someone's house because we go, Oh, they're having a guitar pull. I'm like, what is that? And they would say, well, you bring, you know, a potluck dish or a bucket of chicken or a six pack of beer or whatever. And everybody's got to sing, go around the circle and everybody's got to sing a song. Our publisher at NTM every, I think it was every Thursday afternoon at five, they had a, a guitar pulling. And, you know, you walk in there and it'd be Tom Schuyler who wrote 16th Avenue, Paul Overstreet and, you know, these people who, you know, who just written hit Chris Waters. I mean, these people had written hit after hit at Guy Clark. I mean, it was, just, it was who's who's of songwriters. And it's like, you're just the kid, right? And, but you get to play one too. So you better bring it, you know, you better really bring your A game and try to impress somebody. Cause maybe they're one of those guys who want to write a song with you. Who mentored you during your career? Oh, I had lots of mentors. I mean, I think that's the thing that I, that I learned from all of them was to pass it on. I try to mentor young songwriters as much as I possibly can. One of the greats was Fred Foster, ran and owned Monument Records, and who produced all those Roy Orbison hits, produced Willie Nelson records, produced all kinds of hit songs, co-wrote me and my Bobby McGee with Chris Christopherson. He was a really big mentor and really big champion for me. For sure, Randy Goodrum, who wrote before my heart finds out somebody's going to give you a lesson in leaving, you needed me. I used to babysit his kids. He would do acoustic demos for me in his basement studio. He's the one who kept encouraging me not to give up. Uh, you know, gosh, certainly Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt, Rodney Crowell, they've all meant a lot to me. Their advice has always meant a lot. It always means a lot that I can call Rodney up and ask him for advice. Wow. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rockin' Eight. First thing that comes to your mind, no pressure. Okay. Favorite key to play in? C. Vocal warm-up song that isn't yours? Uh, a Buck Owens song. Uh, why am I drawing a blank on this? This is ridiculous, okay? It's, um, uh, uh, I've got a tiger by the tail. Let's play C. Okay, there you go. Okay. Place to relax when you're not on the road. Uh, any trout stream anywhere in the world. What was your first guitar? Do you still have it? My first guitar, um, I do not. My first guitar was a, a really inexpensive $15 guitar bought across the river in Mexico when, um, when I was a kid. My house was a mile from Mexico. We'd walk over and, you know, or drive over and eat lunch and buy a guitar. How have you passed on your love of music to your three children? What was the last song you sang them to bed with? Oh, I bet the last song I sang them to sleep with was Godspeed that I wrote, you know, because I wrote that for my oldest and sang it to him pretty much every single night. I sang it to my uh, middle son and to my daughter as well. I changed the words around a little bit for my daughter. I'm pretty sure that's the last thing that I sang them to sleep with. And they all play instruments, every single one of them. My oldest is in two different bands. I mean, he has an EDM project he goes by space cadet you can look him up on soundcloud and he does a whole lot of slow groove stuff and he's that's kind of starting to take off where he's been the guy at lots of festivals who he, he goes on as, at, the, at the end of the night at like one o'clock in the morning and he plays everybody down to he brings everybody 
you know, back down to reality till about three in the morning while they're going to their tents. But he also has a country rock band. And then my middle child is a jazz drummer and plays every, that boy plays every single instrument on the stage. And my daughter plays uh, ukulele and is learning to play guitar. And she's one hell of a prose writer and a poet. Who's your favorite current artist? Yeah, that's hard to, you know, what genre? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say, hey, Carl. Last three songs you heard that aren't your own. Last three songs I heard that aren't my own. Hold On Loosely by 38 Special <laughs> on the radio. I would bet that I'm trying to think. Uh, last night, uh, making dinner after we got off the plane, uh, I was listening to whatever jazz my son picked that, so I'm going to say Scrapple from the Apple <laughs> um, by uh, Coltrane, and then probably Ella Fitzgerald because he was, that's what you know he got to pick. What, <laughs> you know, nothing that makes any sense. What message do you have for your fans? You know what? Uh, be creative. Be creative in everything that you do and in everything that you love and, 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 and work really hard at it. Love really, really hard. You know, I always, whenever I introduce Texas in 1880, I always talk about that. That, that song is about more than just riding rodeo. That song is about chasing a dream. And I think that when we chase dreams, and and do it with everything that we are it makes us better human beings so if you chase love you know with with all your mind you end up with things like families that really love you back and if you you know so i don't care if it's that you you know grow tomatoes for your neighbors or weave or weld or want to coach basketball or you know um be a screenwriter or 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 you know just a pretty good golfer or whatever it is that you really love that you know give especially if it's something that gives back you know teach school you know, um, do that with everything. His son's stage name is Space Cadet. He loves Johnny Cakes, misses guitar pulls, and almost was a lawyer. Country music legend Randy Foster, thanks for joining us today. Oh, the pleasure is all mine, Sean. I look forward to it again sometime soon. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.